This is the Solutions for Climate Revolution podcast by Namine Solar. My name is Francesca and I have three guests today to talk about how people in Africa are tackling the pandemic and how they feel about Black Lives Matter. This podcast is a part of Namine's school programme that is also called Solutions for Climate Revolution. The Namine team and I have been designing this school programme since 2019 to raise awareness that the solutions to reversing human-induced global warming are the same as the solutions to reversing inequality. What this means is that when we take actions to reduce our carbon footprints, we are also working to protect people in low-income countries, such as Africa, South Asia, Central and Southern America, because people in these countries have the lowest carbon footprints but are suffering the most from the extreme weather, forest fires and drought that climate change is causing. This is called the injustice of climate change because the people who are the least responsible are the ones who are suffering the most. Solutions for Climate Revolution's aim is to help young people in high income countries minimise their carbon footprint and donate Namine's award-winning solar lights to young people in Africa who currently have to study under the light of a flame of a harmful polluting kerosene lamp. Minimising our carbon footprints does not mean sacrificing our quality of life. It means switching our perspective to save time and money, simultaneously protecting our future and reversing the injustice of climate change to protect the world's most vulnerable today. At the beginning of the pandemic, I remember hearing the one virtue of the virus is that it would be an equaliser. It would affect everybody the same. It would put everyone in the world on the same level together. The last few months have shown that this could not be further from the truth. Different governments across the world have tackled the pandemic differently and it has had different consequences. Moreover, the virus disproportionately affects people of colour more than white people, men more than women, older people more than younger people, poor and less educated people more than wealthy people. Now it is more imperative than ever to shed further light on the depth of inequality present in the world. The more voices we can hear and experiences we can share, the more awareness we can raise and the sooner we can become one people. I am super excited to introduce Leia Kinua, Operations and Supply Chain Manager at Yingli Namane Solar from Kenya. Alistair Davis, a voiceover artist from South Africa and James Rolston, a chef and kitchen gardener from here in the UK. We have five questions, so I'm going to jump straight in. What has lockdown been like for you? How have you had to adjust? Alistair, could you start us off? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on the show, Francesca. What has lockdown been like for me? Well, it's been interesting because South Africa has for once displayed some good leadership and been quite proactive in its response to lockdown. Some would say they've been too proactive and too strict. We had a very, very strict lockdown for five weeks. And by strict, I mean, we couldn't go out the house except for food and go to the doctor. We weren't allowed to buy alcohol. We weren't allowed to buy cigarettes. We're still not a 
We still can't buy cigarettes. I'm not a smoker, so that's fine for me. But the alcohol was a little bit of a problem because we, we ran out after three weeks and I was locked down with my partner, my young son and my mother-in-law who was marooned from Italy. She'd come to visit her daughter because my partner's Italian and then she couldn't go home. And so she had to move in with us. So I had to stay with my mother-in-law for 10 weeks, which was also interesting. And yeah, so it was, a, it was an interesting time a little bit stressful and how did we have to adjust uh, to be honest i didn't have to adjust much because my business is i'm a solopreneur i just work on my own and i work inside my studio so i don't interact with people face to face i do things everything is virtual for me so from a business perspective there wasn't much adjustment at all in fact it was a, a boon for my business but in terms of social the social aspect that was a little bit uh, a little bit challenging sometimes you just wanted to have you know meet your mate have a beer or just talk you get away from the house because you just had this cabin fever of being locked in with all these people and you just couldn't go anywhere and they, they even had cars going outside with you know like those ice cream trucks who have the fog horns on the top of the car they had a car going around saying stay in your house do not leave the house stay in your house and they said it in a few languages so it was it's quite surreal that sounds challenging on so many levels james how was lockdown for you and how have you had to adjust uh so yeah again thanks for having me on it's cool to chat to everyone to hear how this has kind of affected us all around the world um i guess for me being a chef like initially locked down I was like wanted it to happen I was stood in a restaurant that was just empty um, and we were basically being told that if this stays like this for another week or two we're going to close down because there has been like no people are coming in because everyone the fear came and so like yeah at the beginning I was quite grateful for it and I felt like the first few weeks it was like okay cool let's be productive let's get my life together you know almost treating it like not a holiday, but some time for me. And I think about two weeks in, I was like, okay, I've done that now. Now, now what do I do? You know, kind of ran out of things to do. Um, yeah. So I feel after that, again, the lockdown probably was strict like South Africa, but not for as long, um, where you could only go to work if you're an essential worker and then you could go out for food or to the doctors. I'm not sure exactly how long that lasted, but not as long as five weeks. And, um, yeah, and then it has been slowly let down. I mean, I'm so grateful we had a garden. I'm quite a keen gardener as well as being a chef. So I've grown a lot of vegetables. It was springtime, so I was able to spend time sowing seeds and kind of keeping myself busy in that sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, it felt like, yeah, it felt like it's gone on for a lot longer than was expected. So from the initial phase of looking forward to it and seeing it as a positive thing for me, but then realising the actual ramifications of this long people being locked inside and you know and some of the anxiety and things like that that have come about from being you know locked away for such a long time um i guess in the last few weeks it's been such as the rules have been relaxed been such a nice thing to see friends and like you know go out to the park for a beer and things like that has been like such a such a relief, like, you know, like there is light at the end of the tunnel now. So 
yeah, that's sort of been my lockdown experience. Thank you. Leah, are you there? I'm back. Sorry, guys. No, you're okay. We're just um, yeah, going through the first question. What has lockdown been like for you and how have you had to adjust? So, um, generally, it's just been staying at home, not really moving around much. Um, can't really meet up with friends, can't really go to the office. So just your usual shopping, you'll have to do, to do that online. So in that sense, um, life has changed. The, the, the biggest adjustment has been um, social distancing. So yeah, I, I think that's the, I think that's, that's the one thing I'd, I'd, I'd highlight. Social distancing seems to have been, yeah, it's it's one of the hardest things, I guess. It's um, we're all having to adjust yeah. to this, and just be the social creatures that we are. It's um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's very difficult times. Let me move on to the second question. What has been your experience of of how lockdown has affected different people? Alistair, could you start us off? Yeah, I guess it's. It depends on your socioeconomic abilities or the stuff that you have available. I think if you, you know, South Africa is an interesting case in, in that we're a dichotomy of economies. We have a first world component and we have a third world component. And the people who live in the first world component, like myself, I'm fortunate enough to have a house, have enough food, have, you know, all of the, the creature comforts. You know, for us, we just stay inside we had internet, you know, watch Netflix. I think for us, the, the most challenging part was lack of socializing with our friends, not being able to go to a pub, not being able to go to a bar, not being able to see people. So the lack of freedom was challenging for people in our sort of socioeconomic group. But for other people, you know, it was a, it was a case of them not having food. Uh, you know, South Africa has got high unemployment. And so 16 million people rely on social grants, 16 million plus. So every month they get some money from the government to, to live. Uh, you know, some people live in government housing. A lot of people live in government housing. And then the others have these grants. And that's what they use to, to get their, their money. And other people have... So South Africa also has a lot of immigrants from other African countries and around the world. And those people who are not South African citizens don't get grants. So they need to work to earn to buy their food and whatever. So for those people, so if you were from Zimbabwe or Malawi or whatever, you weren't a South African citizen, therefore you couldn't get the grant. You couldn't get the unemployment benefit. So for them, for a lot of people, it was really challenging because just there's no money. Couldn't work. If you're a hairdresser, can't work. And so, you know, it was, it was a, a tale of two cities or, or there was a, you know, a wide spectrum of how the lockdown affected different people. And it was just, you know, access to resources. Thank you, Alistair. James? Uh, so, yeah. So I guess similar but not as extreme as South Africa. Uh, obviously, like I mentioned, we had, have a garden. I think that's been one thing that, you know, friends that I have who live in flats and who aren't able to kind of access that outside space who live in you know, maybe in London or, you know, in other built up areas actually struggle to 
you know, get that interaction with nature that maybe they would have been able to get by going to parks and things like that. But the, yeah. So I feel it's obviously fallen harder on those, like hearing about, you know, families of four, you know, similar situation to you, Alistair, where you've got, you know, a mother-in-law and a child and, you know, a partner, maybe a few children, maybe, you know, maybe you're looking after someone else as well. And actually those people have had a much more difficult lockdown than, you know, than we have who, you know, it's the two of us. So actually we're able to not be as um, on top of each other. There's room we can kind of go away, even though, you know, we are locked down together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess as well, like there have been, there's been a furlough scheme here. So um, what they've done is they've paid 80% of people's wages um, so that businesses haven't had to fire people and businesses haven't had to close down. So that safety net that was put out has been like absolutely massive in preventing a huge spike in unemployment. I feel like there's still been some unemployment and there'll still be more as businesses either don't survive the crisis or work their way to just kind of reducing numbers. But actually that furlough scheme, at least in this initial phase of lockdown and, you know, as we kind of move out, move out of lockdown and into the next phase of the pandemic where it's kind of under control and there's measures in place. Um, yeah, I think that's been a lifesaver for lots of people, but again, people have fallen through the net. Um, self-employed people weren't able to access that. So if you're a plumber or a builder and you were self-employed initially, you weren't entitled to any of that money, but then they've changed that. So yeah, the government have like, as the people have said, these people aren't being looked after, these people aren't being looked after, have improved the sort of um, support, but it's still, you know, it hasn't reached everyone. So some people have been hit a lot harder. Leo, what has been your experience of how lockdown has affected different people? Well, um, yeah, a lot of guys have definitely lost their jobs or are on some form of unpaid leave. So you find that uh, most guys have moved to rural areas just because, well, life in the city is very expensive. So they, they had to shift back to um, home. And then you find um, a lot of I mean, the gap between the rich and the poor is, is quite, quite high. And, and a lot of people live um, under a dollar a day. So you find life has been very hard for, for a lot of these people. They don't have access to, you know, basics, shelter, electricity, food. And the government, um, well, the systems are not efficient, where you find the the aid they receive sort of gets swallowed up in the in the system because of corruption and things like that. So I'd say it's more extreme than um, South Africa, for example. There seems to be this, um, there's, there's such a difference between how South Africa, Kenya and, and the United Kingdom have have been dealing with the with the pandemic and to hear people in Kenya are actually moving having to move out of urban locations into more to more rural locations and mm. it, it's, it's it just shows that there is there's such a difference between how and, and how much it affects how, how it just shows and emphasizes what governments decide to do 
and how it impacts people. And I think it's um, yeah, it takes me on to to the next question. Um, what do you think your government could have done better to tackle the pandemic? Alistair, over to you. I think the South African government, if you follow South African politics over the last couple of years, has had a lot of challenges, mainly because of corruption and ineptitude of government servants. And, you know, basically the government pays a lot of civil servants to do not a lot. And they haven't done much and there was corruption at the highest level and Jacob Zuma is so corrupt and now we've had the new president we have the new president Cyril Ramaphosa and he's been very proactive and when we saw the images in Italy of all the people getting sick the government was quite swift and said right we're doing this we're doing that and this is the plan and they had whatsapp you know numbers set up they had websites set up there were briefings every day it was like wow <laughs> where has this level of organization and commitment come from? I mean, if you could apply this kind of effort and organization and communication and clarity to the rest of the problems in South Africa, then we would be, <laughs> we would be right up there because they just did it so well. But there were certain elements that were not so good. So the, the ban on alcohol and Okay, so they, they said no alcohol because alcohol would uh, increase the amount of A&R or ER casualties in, in the hospitals because people drink a lot, they fight, they stab each other, they'll you know, block up the ER ward. So they said, therefore, no alcohol because alcohol is a big problem in South Africa. And they said no smoking because, well, smoking is bad for the lungs and it you know, will increase the caseload of COVID-19. And then what they had was the army walking through the streets in the poorer areas to sort of control and make sure that people stayed indoors and didn't come out. Because again, South Africa has first world, third world and the third world component. There's a lot of loose informal structures. So people are tightly packed. They live together. And so, you know, they needed to control the people, not control, but they needed to. That's what they said. They wanted to enforce that. And so there was, there were cases of, police brutality so to answer your question i think some politicians became quite authoritarian in their adaption or adoption of lockdown rules they were like okay cool we've got now this lockdown we're going to really tighten and stamp down and we're going to be like a school principal and you know there's going to be the rules and you must stick to the rules if you don't stick to the rules you'll be arrested so it was quite uh, draconian and authoritarian in, in the response. And to this day, the, the, the ban on tobacco is still there. But what that has done is it's created an illicit trade. So now selling cigarettes has now become more profitable than selling drugs. So now you've created another problem because the formal, cig the formal cigarette trade is actually controlled and regulated and they pay taxes. But now you've got all of these fake cigarettes coming in from China or whoever, and they don't pay taxes, and it's creating this patronage network of criminals selling cigarettes. And so now we've got that problem. And so that was a stupid, that doesn't make any sense. And they're still arguing that point in the courts about why a cigarette ban is, is still in place. Thank you, Alistair. It's, um, it seems to be sort of, uh, I'll get on to James and then, yeah, what do you think? your government could have done 
better. I guess the thing, the thing that's kind of shot us in the foot throughout the whole thing is that we didn't react or take it seriously enough at the beginning. I feel like um, the reaction of South Africa is the one that we should have had. It's almost like we slowly walked into lockdown, like at a very gentle pace. And it wasn't like, I don't know if they just weren't aware. There was one, there was a, um, you know, or just, or just arrogant to think we'll be okay. There was talk about herd immunity initially, um, which kind of came out. And I think that he, that Boris Johnson disbanded that, um, I don't know the exact name of the committee, but it was basically a committee that was in charge of the preparedness for epidemics. And he dismantled that when he became prime minister. And I feel like there was a, yeah, not taking it seriously initially. And we should have like gone, there was a politician called Rory Stewart, who was the a mayor of London candidate this year. Um, and he was like in January, like we need to close down fast now because the more you do at the beginning, the better your outcome is and the less damage is done in the long term, which just wasn't listened to. And actually, I think that was the biggest thing that they did wrong. They did a lot of good things, like I said about the furlough scheme, keeping employees and employers like linked by subsidising wages. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of things around personal protective equipment for healthcare staff, which was constantly promised and then never really delivered on and we were hearing things from our hospitals like there isn't PPE there and things like that I trained as a nurse before um, I became a chef um, and some of the nursing friends you know there was there was fear anyway and then that fear was compounded because you had a government that was saying one thing and then not following through so it just kind of really damaged morale of the NHS staff because they were concerned that you know I NHS staff were dying you know because actually it's infectious and if you're high risk because you've got an underlying health condition or because you're older or any of these things and you're happen to be a doctor or a nurse or in the healthcare profession you're much more likely to come into contact with it so the government's lack of bringing in the equipment there was no stockpiles things that the um, pandemic preparedness team were like responsible for those things just weren't there um, I mean, there's probably more things as well, but I think, yeah, they've done some good things and some bad things. I think the worst thing they did was not lock down quick enough and take it seriously from the beginning. You know, we were seeing Italy being locked down and you know, nothing was really changing and how much closer is Italy to the UK than South Africa, you know? So. Thank you, James. Leah, what do you think uh, your government could have done better to tackle the pandemic? For us here in Kenya, I feel it's a lot similar to South Africa. Um, the challenge being that once they imposed curfew, so initially they had a curfew where you had to be home by seven. That has now changed to you have to be home by nine. Um, they also did also, they reduced uh, taxes for businesses and individuals. That's pay, pay as you earn. That helped, um, I'd say, the middle class majority. But for the, for the poor guys, you find um, they say, if I stay home, I do, I want to stay home, I want to, to be healthy, but what will I eat when I'm at home? So they have to, it, it's um, survival for, for most of them. 
So you find the government's framework for them to access food and water and, you know, basic, just the basic amenities. It has completely filled, filled people in that sense. And then you find, for example, like PPEs, um, the guys, the guys at the hospitals don't have the basic, you know, equipment to handle the crisis because somehow the money meant to buy those things went to someone's pocket or just the system again has filled its people. Um, yeah, so you find like crime rate is definitely up. Um, dependency ratio where say for example your sibling no longer has a job or your family no longer has a source of income and you sort of have to pick up um quote unquote that burden so in that sense yeah the government and the system set in place have just yeah just been terrible that seems to be the common theme across all countries well, since in the in South Africa, in Kenya, and in the UK, there seems to be corruption seems to be a common theme. It, it's very interesting to hear um, that South Africa and Kenya moved quite quickly, and that had its own challenges. Maybe having a bit more time to think about an alcohol or a cigarette ban could have maybe changed the outcome of, of those decisions. But then we hear that the U, well in the UK that we didn't move fast enough and, and that has also had had it had its problems i think there's um yeah there's there's definitely i think a lot of lessons that all of our governments can can learn i think moving on to, to to the fourth question um with the world being in lockdown it's definitely meant that more people have more time on their hands and on the events in america on may 25th led to George Floyd losing his life. Black Lives Matter. How does this make you feel? Alistair, can we start with you, please? Black Lives Matter. Yes, I think I have been following American politics for a long time. And I think the systemic racism inside America and inside American politics has been there for a long, long time. And it's good that things are being dealt with. And well, they're not, I don't know if they're being dealt with, but they're definitely front of mind, front and center of everybody's mind. And people are starting to realize certain things, the nuances of racism and how slight and subtle it can be sometimes, even for people who would consider themselves liberal or non-racist or I'm not a racist, but there's, you know, there's always that little slight bias maybe hidden deep down inside of you. So I think it's really heightened the extent of the racism problem in America and, in, and of course in the world. I mean, South Africa has, we're in a, a different, we're in a unique space in that regard and that we've had a very painful racial segregation past and so not to say that south africa sorted its racism problems out not at all it's not that's not that's not what i'm saying but we it's very front and center for us in south africa about race and race racialism and racist and all of those kinds of things so for us you know we 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 have to be careful and we have to be 
cognizant of the past and how we need to act and how we need to be. And that doesn't mean everybody has changed. And that doesn't mean that everybody's now suddenly enlightened and liberal and go, Oh, sure. Now I'm a, I'm a totally, uh, this, namaste peace loving you know love the world kind of person that's not that's not what i'm saying but you know the black lives matter and what happened with george floyd um has definitely stirred the debate and it's a healthy debate that people are having and i think it's a necessary one and hopefully it'll move the world and the u.s into a onto a different path to, to discuss and, and deal with these, these things in, inside uh, the US and the world. Thank you, James. Um, well, I guess like there was, I don't know, a mixture, how did it make me feel? Um, a mixture of sadness and like gladness, weirdly. So I think the fact that in what they themselves would describe as like, you know, the best country in the world sort of thing, have these uh, systems where people are like completely prejudiced against because of their race, geographical location, like all of these things that kind of have this, you know, that sh should be issues that are at the forefront more readily and they're not like the system in America where, you know, the 1% is getting Richard, the inequality is rising. I feel I see a lot of parallels with America and the UK. I feel like Brexit is going to amplify that even more. So I felt sad that those things are so prevalent in, you know, American and in British society. Like I feel there are these issues. We had the Windrush scandal um, in the UK, which is where uh, Caribbean immigrants and, and uh, were brought over in the 50s and 60s as like British citizens, part of the Commonwealth to come and work within our broken country after the war. And then in the last five to 10 years, people have been either sent back or like, uh, you know, they've tried to basically send home people who have lived in Britain their entire lives. And it's like the racism that's there is just so close to home. And I guess I'm glad that there has been a growth in the Black Lives Matter movement and that it has permeated at least, you know, to the UK and I guess in, you know, around the world, like, and I feel like social media and the internet has allowed that sort of spread of action. It's allowed people to engage with it wherever they are and then kind of look at their own situation and be like, what are the parallels? Okay, there it's about police brutality. Maybe that's not such a big issue in the UK, but actually it is there. And there are more underlying racism issues that are not being talked about. We have a, um, a government, we've had five inquiries about racism in the UK that haven't been implemented. Their recommendations haven't been implemented. And then Boris has just said that they're going to do another one. And the lady who he's put to head this inquiry is a denier of institutional racism. <laughs> so she has denied that it exists. She says, uh, I think she's of Bangladeshi or Pakistani heritage. So she kind of looks like she's promoting diversity, but in reality, her beliefs are the opposite. And she believes, you know, that it's not really an issue. So yeah, I, I don't know how much change will come about because of it, but I guess the fact that it's front and center is definitely going to at least in the UK, so cause some change. We'll just have to see how big that change is, I guess.
Thank you, Ben. Leia, how has this movement made you feel? Um, it's definitely an important movement, movement that has been happening for, for the longest time. I mean, I do agree with James. It's now sort of louder. It, it, it's growing, it's gaining traction. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very personal thing I tell you from, you know, from being someone of color, you do experience uh, racism in one form or another within your own country or even outside. So yeah, but here in Kenya, what it has done is sort of um, bring up this conversation around police brutality where it's poor people's lives also matter because they tend to be the ones who are caught in that crossfire because the public can make it home by seven or nine. They need to stay a little bit longer to earn some extra money. So you find, you know, they've also died in the hands of police where, you know, you don't feel safe near a police van. You'd rather, you know, find a way around it. So yeah, it's a really important uh, conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's definitely the world still has work to do to, to close the gap on inequality and, and racial division. Right. I'd like to finish with a statement by Jan Timbergen, who was one of two economists to win the Nobel Prize, in, the first Nobel Prize in economics. Inequality is a race between technology and education. COVID-19 has thought to have initiated the deepest global recession in history. Companies are adapting by cutting costs and moving towards automation. In society, we have quickly adapted to shopping more online and interacting socially via the internet. This accelerated uptake of, te uptake of technology is already widening the inequality divide. Through education, we can combat this. What is the greatest lesson you would like to share to educate others that you think will help reverse an inequality? Alistair, could we start with you, please? Yeah, sure. So I think if you are a person that believes in sharing, a person that believes in helping, a per person that believes in trying to help others who are less fortunate than you, you know, altruistic behavior, then there's two options that you can do. If you are in a position to help, if you have money, if you have resources, if you have time, you can either give your time, your money, your resources to an organization and they can do the work for you, or you can do and do your help closer to home. So if you find or know anybody who's less fortunate than you, um, in, in the case of, I'll just give an example for, for what myself and my partner have done in, locally. We have a, a domestic worker who helps us clean the house, and that's quite common in South Africa. But she has two daughters, and the daughters, we've decided to help the daughters with education. So the one, we've sent the one to uh, another school, so we, we're paying for her education. And then the older daughter, I'm trying to help get a job, so I'm coaching her. Uh, helping her with the CV, fake interviews, bought her some, some data, uh, gave her a laptop, 
So the point being that, you know, to, to reduce inequality, look for people close to home that you can help. You know, if somebody is in an, un, in an unequal footing or on an unequal footing, in, even in a first world country, there are people that are less fortunate than, than you who are also in poverty. And maybe you can reach out to those people inside your community because if your community is stronger and you can share the resources with your community locally to where you are, then that, that can help. Or there's also the, the wider community around the world. There's lots of people all around the world who need help. And so, you know, you can do a combination of both. But in South Africa, we, we, we're more, I think, as I said before, we, we have a first world and a third world component. So we have problems and less fortunate people that are hungry and that need help right here. So we don't have to go anywhere else. Of course, we need to help everybody else and be cognizant of the world as, at large. It's not like we live in a microcosm or we're separate. But, you know, I think that the point is, trying to help people close to home could be a, an easier solution. Thank you, Alistair, that's yeah, beautifully said. James? Uh, yeah, that was really rounded, Alistair. I really enjoyed that answer. Um, yeah, I guess that here, there's definitely a, a sense that what COVID has done is has brought people together and created more local networks of support where people have been, you know, the elderly have been shielding and they've been, um, you know, having people helping them who are able to go out to the shops and do things like that. So I feel like, yeah, Alistair's spot on. I feel if there are people around you within your social groups or neighbours or, you know, there's a lady, in, a homeless lady in town, I buy the big issue from her. There's just like those small things that you can do initially in your immediate vicinity are definitely, you know, the first step in order to make bigger changes like you know it takes lots of small steps from lots of people to create big changes um and i feel that yeah that's probably the best way that people can enact change around them just linking back to an earlier question how technology and the black lives matter movement has spread so much that actually for important issues that are going to be able to have dramatic impact in the way our world works we need to engage with technology and share ideas and um be you know listen to people who we don't agree with as well as do agree with there's a there's a risk with technology that it can become very much an echo chamber but if we take a step to listen to people who don't agree with us on key issues like the environment like racism you know like uh, inequality and we can hear their perspective we can open a dialogue and have more conversations about how we do solve these larger issues, you know, that are going to have a large impact on inequality. Beautifully said as well. Yeah. Small steps, small steps by a lot of people, we can make the big, the big changes. It's beautiful. Leia, what is the greatest lesson you would like to share to educate others that you think will help reverse inequality? I think, um, well, that has also been beautifully said. Um, how I'd summarize it is that, I mean, that we do our best to not have a man eat man society where, I mean, everyone is, you know, just fending for themselves. It's self-development, it's empowerment, it's private ownership, you know, and, and it becomes a, a vicious cycle of poverty where the gap between the rich and the poor definitely 
widens. And I think this, of course, trickles down from our leadership where there should be, you know, proper resource allocation and, you know, just the basics that need to be taken care of. So, yeah, that's that's the best way I think I'd I'd summarize that. Thank you. There's there's a lot of there seems to be a lot of need for our our states and our institutions to do a lot more for for people. So I think there's for me the the lessons here are that we um we need to we need to fight more for for fair, just and and honest governments. And I think through our everyday decisions in whether we choose to to purchase clothes from food from where yeah i think in in every day in all of our decisions every day we we can we can make that choice to to fight for for fight for freedom to fight for justice to fight for for fair work or we can we can choose the cheaper other options that we know are less fair so i think there's 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 so much there's so much to learn here and this is just the beginning of the discussion so i just wanted to thank you all so much alistair james leah for your time it's been inspiring and eye-opening chatting to you all and can't wait to carry on uh, carry on this discussion and start getting start raising awareness and bringing people more more information about how africa is handling the pandemic so thank you all so so much no, thanks for having us, Francesca. It's been yeah. great talking to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you, Leia. <laughs> thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. It's been great to yeah. Yeah, hear what everyone's experience is. Um, yeah, thank you. Take care, Cheers. guys. Thank you, Alistair. Okay. Thank you, Leia. No worries. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Take care, Bye. Guys. Bye.